0: Good evening to all those who have joined us. And a very warm welcome to Dr. Pandey. This is the second in the talk series that Dr. Alok Pandey has so graciously agreed to conduct for us. Two weeks back. We heard Dr. Pandey talk about the aim of life. It stirred many questions in our minds while it quelled some of them. That is the beauty of these sessions. Today, we would hear Dr. Pandey talk about something. Very, very relevant to the times. How to convert an adversity. Into an opportunity. Without much ado, let's move on to today's session over to you, Dr. Pandey.
1: Namaste. So, uh, let me start with a quote from Sir Winston Churchill. He said very interestingly that uh, pessimists see difficulty in every opportunity and the optimists see an opportunity in every difficulty. So, I have often seen this, you know, mindset that there are people even if the doors of the heavens are open for them, they will start counting all the difficulties that they are going to experience when they enter into that zone. And on the other hand, there are people whom, when there is a, you know, uh, difficulty, they start looking at how they can play with this difficulty and turn it, spin it around and turn it into an opportunity. So, but before we go to that, let us first follow a simple process when we navigate through life and its various challenges. So the very first thing which, you know, in, often in counseling because I encounter these people come, come with various problems, the very first thing, first thing is right perception. That's why you see, sometimes it helps to talk to somebody else who is not caught up in the problem. Of course, one should be careful whom one is speaking to. But it's because by the very fact that we speak to someone who is not caught up emotionally, it tends to objectivize the problem. So right perception means understand the problem rightly. What does it mean? Say for instance, there is a, I'm talking of a very recent example, somebody was going through a a difficult pain in a relationship. So usually we end up with a blame game, complaint game. I have this problem, I have that problem, that person has this problem. So the usual thought was that, is there something wrong with me? Because there were feelings of rejection or it was about the other person, that the other person is very bad, horrible. So this is how people go through and there are all kinds of advices. So the first thing to understand is that this which is happening in your life or our life, whatever event is happening… Is it something unique to us? Is it an individual problem or is it a cosmic problem? Now, you know, in one of the mother's writings, very beautiful, she touches the core of the problem. When she says that why there is suffering in life, she says suffering comes in life because of the very nature of imperfection of matter. She has right got into it. As long as matter is imperfect, as long as life based on matter will remain imperfect as long as matter is imperfect. The human body has certain limitations. It allows a certain kind of uh, thoughts, doesn't allow other kinds of thoughts. So she has taken this uh, perception to the extreme level that where is the root of the problem. The second level, when we perceive rightly, as I said, we understand that it's not just an my individual, an event happening in my life. You know, there was… Um, recently, lot of, as you said, uh, recent times, so recent times, there are a lot of people having death, uh, disease. So once someone came to me, 75-year-old person, and he said, uh, sir, I'm very afraid uh, of this COVID. So I said, what is your fear? He said, what if I die? I said, so is it first time happening on the planet? <laughs> Wait, look. <laughs> is it that I'm the first person who is going to die? COVID or no COVID, death has been there. Is disease the first time happening to me? Why I'm saying this? Because normally what we are doing is we are really not solving a problem. In fact, solving a problem is a wrong word. The right word is problem is a opportunity for growth. Now, what we are doing is we are doing patchwork. Oh, there is COVID. So let me, let's take this very example. There is COVID. So let me find all the ways of protecting myself. So I use a mask, which is good. I am, please don't misquote me. (laughs) <laughs> because the re- regulations one must wash my hands, everything I must do, sanitize. Yet, COVID, if it has to enter, it will enter. So, what is the real problem? The problem is not the illness, not the COVID, the problem is fear. And if I keep fear within me, today it is COVID, tomorrow it will be Ebola or yesterday it was Ebola, tomorrow it will be some other and life will be plagued with all kinds of diseases. Now, do I want to live my life under perpetual fear and temporary ways and means of, you know, uh, preventing it? I mean, I remember there used to be a, (laughs) it used to be a joke uh, amongst us uh, when we were doing psychiatry. That there are people who are hypochondriacs who come and complain all kinds of things. I have this problem, I have that problem. And you know, it continues. Uh, So once uh, I read a little joke there, it was very interesting. I mean, that finally a hypochondriac writes on his epitaph, you know, when he goes down the grave. He says, see, for the last, he dies at the age of 80, but he has written his epitaph at 40 years of age. So at 80 when he dies, that epitaph is put upon his grave. So, what is the epitaph? It says, See, I've been telling you for the last 60 years that I have an illness. <laughs> now, this is this 60 years one is living with this idea of illness? Now, is this the kind of life we want to lead? Problems, temporary solution, problems, temporary solution. In this context, somebody asked the mother, she gave a very wonderful answer. Somebody asked the mother that, mother, why are, uh, you know, why are these uh, measures? Sometimes we see in the ashram there are filters. Sometimes we see that mass, sanitization, sanitization, etc. You know, people often quote, oh, during mother's time also there used to be no bath and all these things. Now, when mother was asked this question directly, she said, my child, it depends on the level of consciousness on which we live. So, if you are in the physical consciousness, you need to use physical means. And since, he goes on to say, since most of us even here, most of the people even living in the ashram are living in the physical consciousness, therefore they have to use physical means. But what we must know, which is what we know here is that there are other means by which we can protect ourselves. This is the first knowledge that we must have. And secondly, the second knowledge we must have is that it's not enough to just know it. We are moving towards that and we must move towards it. It may take long time, that's fine, but we must have a clarity about the goal. So, right perception includes everything. Second aspect of right perception is that, you know, is it something so important that our life depends on it when we use the word difficulty? Now, let me take an example which I often use. I have to go to place X. And on the road, I find a man with whom I get into an argument, discussion, debate, fight, quarrel. Now, I am losing time. I have to reach. I give this example, you know, ashram is closing at 6.30 p.m. And I get into an argument and discussion. So, ultimately, I miss the real thing. So, the mother gives a very interesting example. She says, step back and see the things that we value right now as so very important. Are they really important? In other words, we must in our life make a priority list. Lot of people experience a lot of unnecessary difficulties because they don't have a priority list. So in priority list, there must be one thing which is most important to me, which I cannot sacrifice. This is something fundamental. It's like the very goal of life. Then there are things which help me towards that goal of life. But eventually, we can find a way. And finally, there are things which are there in life. It's, we are happy if they are there, but they are not my top priority. Now, this lack of prioritization of things in life brings a lot of needless suffering, pain, even adversity because there is something which is going to go away. We are thinking it is an adversity, but actually it's an opportunity. You know, that famous story of uh, Noor Jahan, that there is a Chinese mirror and it, it's broken. Uh, it falls down when a maid is, uh, you know, cleaning it and it breaks. And this maid is in tears, shambles. She goes and stands in front of the empress and says, um, uh, The mirror from China is broken. And now she has hung her head that next, the the sword or what is going to come. And she ponders for a while. She is a deeply spiritual lady and she says, Khupshud. Very good. Oh, what is this very good? She is not sure whether it's sarcasm or… <laughs> she is khupshut. Samane khud bhi ni shikast. That which was flattering my ego is gone. Now, this can happen when you are clear about the goal. Otherwise, you think it's an adversity. Another very interesting way is that, I'm just speaking of some of the strategies, that, see, when the river knows where it has to go, so what does it do? It goes, meets a mountain, it doesn't keep fighting with it. It just circuits around it. You know, there is a very interesting river in Ujjayan, Shipranadi. So, you know, it goes around like this. It's very interesting to see that river. And there are many rivers like that. Look at Brahmaputra, you know, how it goes through the mountains. Eventually, it finds its way to fall into the sea. It knows where it has to go. It goes through everything. So, when we know the goal, one of the big problems of life is that we don't know the aim. We don't know the goal. We don't know where we have to go. So, everything we start fighting. Everything we start quarreling, everything we start, you know, I often use this example, take another example of career. Somebody wants to become a doctor and uh, so the person is applying for a lot of courses, examination and as we know it's it's not because exam is tough or there are some exceptionally brilliant people. I don't believe in that. I believe that, you know, not everything is meant for everyone. You know, we must follow our own swadharma, which is what the Gita says that, swadharmo nidhanam shriya paradharma bhaiya. When you follow the swadharma, what you are meant to do, it doesn't matter. Success or failure, never the original script of life. So here, there is a example that somebody tries for medicine and, you know, uh, allopathic medicine. Does it two times, three times and fails. So, people come like that. So, I ask them that, well, what do you want to become? So, doctor. So, why do you want to become a doctor? So, if it is… See, one group is, I want to earn money. You have hundred ways of earning money. Find a way. The second is, I want to… Uh, you know, doctors are next to God. There are many ways you can become next to God. Though It's a damn dangerous thing to become, <laughs> try to become God. Uh, if somebody tries to put you in that position, be very humble. <laughs> Don't take it to your head. And the third thing is I want to heal people because I am moved by compassion. So then I reorient them. I say, okay, you want to be healer. So, why do you believe that you can, You have to become a healer because you have to become an allopathically qualified doctor. Ask of allopathically qualified doctors and though people have put them on the pedestal, the fact is it can be very frustrating. Because there are challenges where you don't know saving the life of a patient is better or to just let him go because you know, with all the technological advances and many times it can be very frustrating and a healer is different from just a allopathic MBBS doctor. So once we set the goal right, right perception means this. There is another aspect of right perception and that right perception is that look at a picture, look at a scene in comparison with the large picture of life. Then we will see how small it is. Like, you know, I, just now I read in one of the messages, very beautiful message, that every cloud has a silver lining behind it. Go behind, you will discover that. But if you see from this side, it's all cloud. If you, so, it's a question of reversing the whole thing and looking at it. So, this is one part of it. Then with right perception comes. So larger picture is what? Larger picture is never about success and failure. There is something else which is happening. There is a very nice uh, story which I read which is very fascinating before we come to the next step. So, this story is about a monk and young person goes there and says, I want to join the monastery. So, the monk says, okay, come and play chess with me. So, you know, that those are the ways of, you know, some of these spiritual people, mystics are not like, okay, you want to join monastery, tell me whether you have read the Gita, the uh, Buddhist text and all. This is never a spiritual man's way. So, he wants to see, you know, what is, do you have the quality? So, he says, come and play chess with me. Uh, you are good at it? He says, yes, I am pretty good. He says, I am also good at it. Let's play chess. So, he thinks that, well, if I beat him in chess, I get a chance. So, he says, hold on, hold on. So, the the thing is that whoever is defeated, will have his head chopped off. And there is a man now sitting with his sword. Now, this game becomes very different because now it's not just about joining the monastery. It's about if I lose, I'm going to die. Now, it's no more like I can't go back from here. So, he has taken a step. So, so he starts playing and when he starts playing, he is, you know, beginning to fail, he is beginning to lose. Now he knows he is going to die, so he can't afford to be afraid. So he gathers all his attention and starts playing very well, very well till he is now beginning to be on the winning side. Now when he is on the winning side, then a thought comes to him. He says, see, if I win, this monk is going to die and if I lose, I am going to die. And then he assesses, he says, whose life is more precious. He says, this monk has spent his lifetime in this sadhana, in his yoga. He is giving so much light to people, he can't afford to die. I am after all a youngster, even if I am killed, it's okay. I mean, I can start my life again, but he can't die. So he starts making the wrong moves to lose the game. The moment the monk uh, notices it, he picks up the sword, throws it on the chessboard and says, game is over. He said, what do you mean? He says, you have the two qualities needed for entering the monastery. One is attention, the ability to concentrate, to turn fear into strength. You see, he was afraid. Now fear can paralyze us. The second is, we can turn fear into strength. I am afraid of something, now I have an option. Either to be paralyzed and say, okay, fine, or I take on the challenge head on. That's what we see the Gita starts with, you know, he's afraid. And Sri Krishna says, being afraid and escaping either in the name of spiritual, um, you know, asceticism and things like that is one kind of response you can give. Other is fight. Life and death is there. You may win, you may lose. You may live or you may die. But at least you have played the game nobly because this is your swadharma. So, she says first quality that you changed fear into an opportunity to take on, fight, changing fear into the response where you take the, you know, adversity and you may win. It's not that every time one may win, you may fail. But to fight nobly and even if you fall, fall nobly, there is a grandeur in that. And to give up, escape, trying to run away, even if you win, you are safe, it's not a, you know, it's, it's an ignoble life. He says the second quality you have is compassion. That even if you are capable… You still value the life of others more than your own, so you see the, 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 the whole perception has to change the way now why we have this perception because of ignorance, collective suggestions, habits, we are taught from birth that you know you are a percentage, you, are, you have to do this, you have to have that to be happy. Now, because of all this, our entire perception is distorted. And that is where we need to correct our perception. That's a whole exercise in itself. And I have just spoken some hints. It's a whole world in itself. Then there is a right understanding. What is the right understanding about our life? Mother says very interestingly, she says, you know, people want to be immortal. And then she laughs, she says, but I have gone into their consciousness and seen, when they say we want to be immortal, they want everything in their life, all the relation, everything to continue as it is. So when they say immortality, but she says that cannot be. Why it cannot be? Change is the nature of life. This is the right understanding. Those who cannot embrace change are always afraid, terribly worried people. What if things will change? They will change. Take it that they will change. The very body changes. Everything changes. But we must understand that change doesn't mean bad. Because things change, therefore we have a chance for progress. Otherwise we are stuck in our comfort zone. So this right understanding implies first that there is change and second that life is a field of progress. We put the cart before the horse and we say life is meant for happiness. So we live as terribly afraid people and everything that takes away my happiness, I regard it as a threat and an adversity. But... Well, something which has come to take away my happiness means that it has shaken my comfort zones. But precisely because it has done that, it has given me an opportunity to reinvent and reconstruct myself. You know, there is a very interesting bird. I'm sure everybody has heard. Phoenix bird. And the mother gives its example. Now, this is a mythical bird and uh, I love this uh, story of the bird. It is a bird that comes from the heavens. It comes from the skies and enters into fire. And as the Egyptian story goes, it comes once in thousand years. It's about the avatar basically, it's nothing else. It's there every age of mankind has its conception of avatar. They don't use the word. We should not be bound by words. So it comes, enters into the flames and then from the ashes it rises up. And it rises up and now it's got a more glorious and golden body. You know, this very beautifully described in Savitri in one line, a god… Come down and greater by the fall. Another line, the Godhead greater by a human fate. Now you see, if we look at it like that, imagine when you know great beings have wanted to take birth upon earth, have plunged into this inconscient, this darkness. If there was ever a ghosty of gods, and they would have said, What are you doing? What are you doing? Don't do it, don't do it. You're embracing adversity. What would this being say? I am embracing change. Why are you embracing change? Because I am embracing progress. What do you mean by that? He would say, see, I am in the status of the gods. But I want to rise further. You guys are all static. You don't progress. You are in a typal world. You are happy with whatever you have. But I am sick and tired of this static state. I want to go beyond. But the paradox is that if you… You know, the story is very interesting. That gods, if they have to progress, they have to take a human body. Ever felt, ki? what is hai? Why is this? Why is such a law? It's a strange thing. You know, we, we all know about it. We have read it. Now, one reason is that because in human body, there is something which is like a catalyst for progress, which the gods don't have. That's why in Kathopanishad, we have, you know, when… Nachi asks Yamada, tell me the secret of immortality. He says, even gods don't know it. So why gods don't know it? Because they don't have it. Now this catalyst for progress, why is it found in such a despicable state? Precisely because when there is a tremendous adversity, when we are compressed from every side, that's the time when we can bring out our greatest strengths. Somebody, as Shibindu says in one of the aphorisms, never take the leading of someone who has never failed in life. A true leader is somebody who has experienced failure, who has experienced bitterness, who has experienced fall. See, there was a very nice video long back I had uh, seen and I strongly recommend to people who want to, let's say, be healers. And it's called the wounded healer. I think now a number of parts have come, but when it came first time. And it says very beautifully that somebody who has not felt the pain of one's own pain, how can he ever understand the pain of others? So I use it like... Often humorously when, you know, uh, sometime when you are not well and people say, Arrey, doctor, you are not well. I said, yes, I am on a crash course. Crash course of what? You know, crash course of empathy. What do you mean crash course of empathy? See, doctors are very insensitive to people's pain because, you know, they have over a period of time, they take it like but for a patient it's not just a headache it's like a brain tumor sitting on his head so now it happens doctors do sometime become very insensitive because also because there is a knowledge that well it's not as serious as you think Uh, so so, uh, sometime when you go through it yourself then you understand then you will never tell another person oh it's a migraine it's okay Because you know what it means, it can be pretty frightening to somebody. So you will then explain, you will, you know, take all the pains to make the person understand, reassure. So everything in life, when we look at it from the right understanding, the right understanding, the first important thing is that life is a field of progress. Once we understand it, then everything can make us progress. Even if I'm, you know, there is a poem of Shirvinda, To the Sea. I am sure he must have seen the sea here and then, you know, got it like. He says, oh see, you are there and majestically and I am uh, coming to match myself with you. Let me see who is vaster, who is mightier. And then he gives an example. He says, I want to ride your waves like holding a lion's mane. And then he says, oh you say, ki you will uh, drown me and put all your weight on my chest. Then he says, I will still resist. It's a very powerful one of those places Where Shivin says, if you need to fight Fight with your arms If not uh, arms and legs Then with speech If you cannot Then with your will, faith These should never die till the last moment Why? Because doom is not a close, a mystic seal Death is a passage Fools to annoy So it is not a close the, Even if the one maintains the unseen decree Thy refusal is written in thy credit page. For doom is not a close, a mystic seal. The spirit rises mightier with each defeat. Its godlike wings grow wide with every fall. Its splendid failure sum to a victory. It's a other way around. Sometimes our victories sum to a failure. Oh, I did this, I did this. Some people are, you know, full of all these. When people show, you see, this reversal of understanding about life. There are people who at the end of the day are busy displaying these many medals, these many uh, degrees. You know why? Because somewhere inside they felt that I have failed in life. Only such a person will display all these things. But somebody who has actually won the game of life in the true sense, who has lived his own life, will never bother about all this, whether people appreciate, don't appreciate. So, right understanding is to understand that we are here for progress. And where is the end of this progress? There is no end of this progress. Even on deathbed, if we make the choice of not conceding to death, it doesn't mean that, you know, we may not die. Physically, we may die. But we are going with this idea that, look, death, you stared into my face and I stared back. And I said, look, I am calm. Try to scare me. And what did I see? I saw behind death… This is a mask, I saw my beloved's face. Now, when we live with this approach and attitude, then even that last moment becomes a means for progress. That's how Krishna puts it. What does he say in the Gita? If all your life you have remembered and offered your life to God, then what happens? When you are at the last moment remembering me, it's like a leap because it's an intense concentration of consciousness. So, this is the right understanding. Then right response. Right response is equally important. Now, what is right response? Actually, if we understand everything, more or less right perception, we will make a right response. Right response is based on the goal we have in, in front of our life. And it's understood that there are responses which take us down further and further, which make us cramped up, small, narrow. Fear is the worst kind of response in the face of any situation. And what is the greatest response? Just the very antidote of fear. And that is faith. It's a tremendous response. People don't understand the power of faith. It means that I have faith. You know, one place Swami Vivekananda says, have faith in yourself, faith in your destiny, faith in God. Faith in faith. Why are we living with so much of fear all the time? Fear is a response which may preserve your body but damage our soul. Faith is a response which makes our soul glow, even if in the bargain, though it creates the best conditions for the body either to recover or to depart, either ways. But even if it keeps your body for a moment, you know, oh, you see, I did all the right things. All the right things were just the wrong things. (laughs) Because, (laughs) imagine going finally one day and saying, you know, I preserved myself. Look here, God, I have preserved myself and lived to ninety following all the right rules that way. He will say, but you are perfectly useless to me. You never took the challenge of life. So, you know, the adversity, there people shrink into a little hole and there are others who take it as a challenge. And what happens when you take life as a challenge? It helps us to grow stronger. That's the game of life. It's not about success and failure. Often I give this example, when two teams play, for the sattabaj it is success and failure. Ask the team players, momentarily success failure, after that what happens? They're all in the lobby sitting, okay, this is yet another game. And what is happening in the process? They're growing as human beings, they're growing in strength, they're growing in stamina. Even a player who has lost most of the times, let's say in a football match, of course he may not be kept, that's different. But he has grown in terms of his capacity, at least in his lung capacity. So, this idea that I am playing because I must win or, or, you know, I am afraid of losing, it's a lower motive. This motive works in, you know, in ignorance, this is the motive which works. But a higher motive is that I am playing it so that I can awaken my body consciousness, I can open to, it to the divine. So, the right response is not about doing the, doing different things. Often people think that, you know, great people are those who do different things. No. Great people also do the same ordinary things. Whatever greatness means, by the way. But great people do ordinary things in an extraordinary way. And <laughs> the small people do extraordinary things in the most ordinary way. They are standing before God. And what they are looking for is my little agarbatti which I will do like this. God he's confused. <laughs> what are you trying to do? Sir, I am searching for my narial. Why? I want to break it (laughs) down on the ground. He will say, break it on your head. Your head is the narial. That's a symbol. My child, break your head so that I can put some light of liberating knowledge into it. (laughs) So, they are doing extraordinary thing. You see, prayer is the most extraordinary thing in life. And I am saying with all uh, all these uh, sense behind the words. People say, but we all pray. No, we don't pray. We don't know how to pray. We are afraid, we are bargaining, we are calculating, we are asking things. So we are asking everywhere. You see a typical person who is praying, he will go to politician, he will go to the policeman, he will go to priest, everything, Rahu, Ketu, everything. He will also go to God. And he will say, by the way, who knows, this may work. (laughs) I have known atheists who will say, you know, there was a famous example of somebody who was an avowed atheist, but when he had a paralytic stroke, he went to the loot spring to uh, get the touch of that healing water. So, somebody spotted him and said, what are you doing here? He said, who knows? Who who knows? I am a rationalist. How do I know it may help? (laughs) At the end of the day, it may help. (laughs) So, now, this kind of a mentality where, you know, this is not prayer. Prayer is something which rises from the heart with the certainty that my Lord has heard it. Is there a greater felicity than the divine having heard us? It doesn't matter what he will respond. Now, he knows. He may not respond, he may not give me what I have asked But he has heard it Very often people say, are all prayers answered? Well, Shurabinda says they are heard for sure (laughs) They are answered, but you may not be ready to receive the answer Because you want one particular answer Does even a human mother always answer a child's prayer all the time by doing whatever the child asks? No, because heaven's wiser love rejects the mortal's prayer So, pray we must, prayer adds, it connects us to something much greater. That changes the whole face. What prayer may do? It may not always, let us say somebody is on deathbed, bachalo, bachalo. Now, thing is, you may not escape, but your fear of death may pass away. You may even understand that it's good for me at this point of time to make a change or shift. So prayers, the answer to prayer which comes is an answer from the higher consciousness. It's not an answer from my own state. I want an answer from my own state. I want to pray and I want a particular result. That's not prayer at all. That's uh, bargaining with God. And if you bargain with God, you will be a loser. If he grants what you have asked, why? Somebody asked, why does the divine uh, grant desires when on one side he says, go beyond desires? So, he says, sometimes he wants you to learn through the bitter experience. So, when God grants prayer, you don't know whether it is a good thing that is happening in your life or not really. So, best is, that's why mother said, best prayer is, say what you want, nothing wrong in that. We should be sincere like a child, candid, Lord, I want this candy. But tell him, but you know what, I don't know what's going to do to me, so… take care of all the consequences and the effects. And ultimately, see, this is my prayer. But ultimately, you do what your will is there. And if we do it sincerely, then we will say that life begins to change. Because we are taught somehow this uh, modern mind which has separated God from uh, our ordinary life. So, it, you know, says… Uh, prayer is only for going to heaven and our everyday life is everyday life where your effort. So, you see, I often say that there is a very interesting thing in Indian movie and the western movie. So, in Indian movie, the moment a ship is doing like this, a little bit, you know, suddenly you will see everybody starts praying, you know, uh, depending on… every hand is going up and suddenly there is lightning and all that magical effect and suddenly the ship stabilizes. (laughs) So, this is one. Or, you know, if there is… uh, um, evil, some villain doing some uh, all kinds of things, and someone prays, and there is Trishul comes and <laughs> strikes and dies. This is one kind of response. This is another, where you see in the Western context, in the Western context, if the ship is drowning till the last minute, they are trying to fix the problem, fix the problem, fix the problem. Now, which of the two is better? A little bit of both. <laughs> try, your, try your hand. But rely on the greater power. You know, this tendency for either all. Because you, why, why divine wants us to make the effort? Because effort prepares me for the grace. Effort prepares me for the progress. If everything the divine were to do, we are like marionettes, then there is no progress. Even if he saves my life, he does, by the way. But if he saves my life, ten million times I will remain the same person. So we do what we need to do. So synthesis of western and eastern movie. Somebody should make. Where they are doing effort at the same time inwardly they are praying. So we must do what we have to do and pray. Then the other part is that very often these problems come because of the attitude. So there is a shift in attitude required. What is the usual attitude when there is a problem? We want somebody to blame or somebody to fix. So Mr. Blame it all ultimately is God poor fellow. Either you have a husband or wife or you have God. One of the two will be responsible for your problems. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, if, if you are alone, you know, single, so whom do you blame? You have God. What does an atheist do? He also blames. He says, see, what I have seen atheist actually saying, God doesn't exist, uh, look at this world. So, I have heard somebody say this uh, number of times, close interaction. I say, okay, but you are an atheist, why are you continuing to blame God who doesn't exist? <laughs> he says, where do I take out my frustration? So I said, you can take it out on 100 people, but not God. Either you say that God exists and, you know, I blame him. There is some kind of a, you know, uh, maybe he'll say, my child uh, try to understand my ways and I'll tell you uh, why I punish virtue with defeat and, Why Pandavas have to go through all this suffering? Then, you know, it's a different aspect altogether. So, we want to, we end up into a blame game and complain game. So, either there is somebody outside me to blame or there is somebody inside me to blame. So, we take two approaches. Both are equally uh, horrible. So, one approach is, I mean, they are self-defeating. One is that there is somebody outside to be blamed for my difficulties, for my problems, for my challenges. What happens then? I I have lost my empowerment. Because now I, I am waiting for somebody else to change and people have spent lifetimes trying to change their spouse and then they come, you know, he doesn't change. I say, but who told you that he will change? Did Is it written in any book that somebody will change because you want him to change? Nobody changes. Nowadays, even children don't change, let alone spouse, fully formed human being. He's not going to change. Accept or don't accept, that's up to you. But you want him or her to change. Unless there is deep, intense love and that too will be momentarily. Because that kind of love which can really completely plunge oneself is rarest of rare things. So, let's talk about the common thing. Or else, they end up blaming oneself. I am bad, I am horrible, I am this thing. They don't help. As far as circumstances are concerned, outside you know that uh, circumstance means people. You can't change them. So, what we can do is we can change ourselves. So, how to change ourselves? Look at it rightly. So, it is very beautiful. One serenity prayer, which I learnt just immediately after my MBBS, somebody gave me that prayer and for a long time I had it, uh, 13th century prayer. O Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The strength to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. So, there are things we cannot change. We can't change others. So, it's no point complaining, blaming them. But what I can do is I can change. How I can change? I can shift my attitude. Instead of putting all my expectations from one person and it's a big stress even for the person, poor fellow, he'll break down. You want uh, the person to be Mr. Everything and you know, everybody and you know… No, you shift it to the right goal, right focus. And many people, you know, turn to God, uh, knowing that, you know, life's nature is like this. Of course, it should not be a very uh, harat, uh, thaka hara manushya. because is good for nothing. But uh, you understand the nature of life, that, you know, probably you are expecting too much. It's a human being. He will break under the burden of your expectations. So, this is where, uh, instead of complaining and blaming, we learn… And we discover there is something within us and we make an attitudinal shift. And One beautiful example of that is the story of a sheikh who is passing through a desert and he has the court philosopher along with him. And this court philosopher, while they are going through the desert with all the caravan, retinue, they spot a man sitting under a, um, you know, a palm tree and who is uh, eating something. So, he is curious that who is this madman in this heat, in this desert, sitting there and he's, what is he doing? So, the court philosopher knew that he is a mystic. So, he tries to say, sir, he is of no consequence because court philosophers want always to be in the limelight. If he discovered that there is a greater mystic, there is a real mystic, I am only a pandit, then my job may be threatened. So, he is feeling threatened. But the seik insists, no, no, let's go, let's go, I am curious. So, they go there. So, he asks… Oh, who are you? He says, nobody. Okay, Mr. Nobody, what are you doing? He says, can't you see I'm eating gruel? So, the court philosopher by now is, you know, under lot of anger. He says, you know, sir, he turns towards his master and says, he's a fool. He says, yeah, but what do you mean? He says, then he turns to the uh, fakir, mystic and says, you know, what a fool you are. If only you learned how to please the king… You would not have to eat gruel for the rest of your life. And the mystic replies, I think you are a greater fool. What do you mean? If only you learned how to eat gruel, you won't have to please the king for the rest of your life. Now you see, eat, learning to eat gruel is much simple. So it's like setting your priorities right. Maybe I had wrong priorities. And when I have wrong priorities, I am bound to suffer. If I am attached, some at one place the says, one of his letters, he says... Um, Blows do not come to you because there is something wrong in you or because you have done some sins etc. Et, et. You know, this idea of sin and virtue and punishment and karma and justice has completely taken away from us the earth for progress. And guess how? Because, you know, whenever anything happens, you say, ye toh karma hai, So I have to suffer. Somebody is run down by a truck and instead of catching the driver, we say, It's your destiny, what to do? This is a completely ignorant idea of karma. Karma is in fact about you make your destiny. Purushar, what you have done in the past is today. So that means today what you are going to do is going to have an effect tomorrow. So we can change our destiny even if we just take that purushar. That's why it is said that when life offers certain things, accept them. Because when you go through it rightly, you can change it. But if you don't go through it rightly, it will come back. That difficulty will pursue us again and again. So there is this need of an attitudinal shift inside and see that maybe I am attached to things which give pain. That's what Sri Aurobindo says in the letter, that difficulties do not come to you because there is something bad in you or evil or you know, you have committed sin. They come to all human beings. And why do they come to all human beings? He says they come to all human beings because they are attached with things that are in their nature transient. They are going to pass away. So, a great lesson of life, you know, in my psychiatric practice in Air I had written this outside. This too shall pass. That famous story of King Solomon. This too shall pass. This is the great lesson of life. That look, you know, if I get too attached with things, deliberately one may, like, you know, we know the story of how the divine beings, when they come to earth, because they have come, how the divine mother used to attach herself to us. Shri speaks of that that she would completely identify with us, take our problems on herself, that, that, the divine beings. But ordinarily, when we attach ourselves with somebody, we are bound to suffer because by its nature, it's a transient object and it is going to pass away. Either the value of it will pass away, the joy we are getting will pass away, because it's the nature of earthly life. Now, One proviso to that, in a typical Buddhist setting, we would say that is the nature. But here the mother says, but we are here to change that. But to change it, we must change the very basis of our existence. And that's where we come to the last issue. Now, what is the basis of our existence? If our basis of our existence is ego and its satisfactions, uh, fulfillment of desire, then we can change really nothing. We live with the illusion of change. We are changing this, we are changing that and it's going to collapse. But if we change the basis of our existence, what is the basis of our existence? Dharma. This world is a divine unfolding. And when we participate in creation with this idea that this is the purpose of my life… A prayer, a master act, a king idea, no more to satisfy my desire or my ego self. But when we live with this soul intention, the more we are aligned to the divine truth which is wanting to express into this transient Anthya Masukam Lokam Sumam in this world which is transient suffering world, the more we will help it become better. We want this world to become perfect. We want happiness to abide, we want love to never fade away in human heart, never to die. We want knowledge to be sure. Not mixed with error and doubt. We want bliss to be unconditional. We want peace to be constantly there. But the way of that is not through these means that we are adopting. Maybe we are asking for the right things but in the wrong place. So the way is change the basis of life. The basis of life must be truth. What is that truth? All this desire and all this completely corruption of the original file. The original script of life was never meant for… This is a corrupted file which has come and it had its purpose I am not going into that there is a different discussion altogether but right now and desire is a helper up to a point ego is a helper up to a point but a time comes when we have to go past it we must know that with desire and ego life will give a mixed baggage it will be thoda kushi thoda gum but if we want it to be always happy always beautiful always true always that love in its resplendent glory harmony beauty, all these things that we aspire for then we have to change the basis and the basis has to be truth and what is the truth? first truth, my individual soul truth swadharma, let us live with what we are born to do not what my neighbors are born to do whether they are doing it, they appreciate it nobody appreciates it, doesn't matter true successes swadharmo, Nidram shreya true successes to lead our own true life the truth that has been shown to us And failure is, the only failure is not to live by that and amass a whole empire of wealth. True success is to rise nobly, even fall nobly if need be, but following one's highest law of truth. This is the first truth. And the second truth is the divine will that is expressing in creation. So let us live for that. And the more we align ourselves with that, we will see that every difficulty is an opportunity. Why? Because the divine is everywhere in everything. Even when we are faced with the most seemingly unsurpassable difficulty, that means we have a chance to realize the greatest divinity in that. That's why mother says that you know we are all built in such a way. That's why difficulties there are outer and inner. What is the greatest inner difficulty? It's called as a shadow. What is the shadow? That which opposes the divine plan in us. It is that point of extreme resistance in us. In others, there are other points. But one's own shadow. Now, why shadow is given? And you can't escape it. Try doing it in any amount of meditation, it will come back, it will hit you. So, one day you have to take it head on. So, how do we take it head on? We say, shadow, show me the light which is hidden inside you. Why are you coming wearing this mask, O Divine Beloved? And then you will see slowly that the mask will go away and you discover the wonderful Divine Presence in all things. And when we have discovered thus, right through the heart of the shadow, then we discover him everywhere. So the path is everywhere because the divine is everywhere. And one who has chosen to live for the sake of the divine will, to manifest the divine will, will find that however big the… And I am not talking about outer difficulty, they are nothing actually, but inner difficulty because all the difficulties are ultimately inside us. The real adversity is inside us, you know success, failure, all this is a corrupted version of something else. But the greatest challenge, the greatest difficulty, the greatest handicap of life may be your greatest opportunity. And let me close with one small story from my clinical practice. So, there was a boy who was 14-year-old and his parents had come, lot of depression. So, the whole family wanted to commit suicide. So, only boy and he was suffering from a condition, progressive muscular dystrophy. So you are going to die inevitably. I mean, he had already lost functioning of his leg. Was, with great difficulty, he could lift his hand with some support. But he knew that slowly he is going to lose that ability also. And um, he has to be spoon-fed and eventually it's death. There is nothing you can do about it, you know genetic um, autosomal dominant gene and it's it's death staring in your face. So they all knew every doctor was saying this so you know they tried ultimately and they came to me for depression. So I said um, first I called um, I spoke to them the parents and I said see you need to reorient yourself and then there was a kind of discussion that he's you are regarding his is my own son, so you are suffering. You look at it like this, that God has given you an opportunity to help him in the transit. So, while he is transiting through you, instead of filling his life and your life with sadness, help him grow as a human being. After all, his soul is still alive. He said, uh, then it was a change of perspective, because one of the biggest problems of life is when you feel you are helpless. So, when you realize that you are never helpless till the last moment, there is something which you can always do. And that something is to remember the divine within. So, he was, they were totally changed. He said, now how do we do this? I said, you call your son. So, next sitting was with the son. I asked him, you know, he could barely speak but with effort. So, I am cutting that conversation into a smooth flow conversation. But it was, you know, great difficulty he could articulate. So, I asked him, so uh, I can see that, you know, you are naturally, obviously feeling… Yeah, so distressed, he said. Yes, I said, but what distresses you most? He says, There are boys my age who can do things which I can't do. I said, Yes, but what are those things? He gave some examples they can cycle, they can climb trees, they can play cricket. And I said, Yes, I can understand. So I said, So uh, are there things which you can do which they can also do? Now this boy gave me a shock. I had not expected this answer. He said, I can think. I said, Very good. You can think. I said, What else? He said, I can pray. I said, okay, very good. And he literally spoke what is there in that novel. Harman, says, you know, Siddharth, uh, except for half a sentence. And he says, suddenly, I don't know why he said, he had never heard this before. He said, I can meditate. I said, okay, now you tell me, because you cannot do those things, you have more time for these things. So, can you do this better than others? He was pause for a moment. He said, yes. I said, so let's try to think, pray and meditate. He said, yes. There was a glow on his face. There is something I can do. I'm not hopeless and helpless because I can't move my hands. My brain is still active and I, my heart is still active. So I started telling him how to, you know, um, get into the... He, I could see that there is some touch of the poet inside him. So I said, why don't you try writing poems? So he started... With great difficulty he could write So I asked uh, people to assist him So with the assistant he started writing poems And till five years I was in contact with him Even when parents got transferred And he would give a ring on his birthdays Or otherwise And with great difficulty he could speak So somebody would say But he was a happy boy Why? Because he realized there is something you could do And surely he was progressing He was so happy seeing that a poem can be born out of him So there is always something we can do It's never a hopeless case. And that something is, if we really consult within, when outside we can do nothing, there's something we can do inside. And that inside is, if we can do nothing else, then we can think, we can pray, we can meditate. And if we can do none of these, at least we can remember and take the name of God. It's not something ordinary. So, sometime when there is nothing else we can do outwardly, when mother had given this, that, you know, when people... Uh, sometimes they are, they grow old and they can't do things with hands. And so one of them had asked Dr. Vishweshwaraya, he was in, you know, head in um, general hospital. So he was sharing this with me. He was 90. So he said, you know what mother told me, I asked her once, that uh, I am not able to do now anything and serve you, what do I do? He said, why my child, you call my name, that is the greatest service because you are bringing into this atmosphere forces of a very high order. He said, when you cannot do anything with your hands and feet, do this. There are not many people who can do this. There are a lot of people to run around and you know, do other things but this is something which not many can do. So do this. So let us live with this great utterance that there is always something we can do. And even when we can do nothing else, the least we can do is to call the name of God. And then we will see that when we are pinned down from every side, what greater adversity can there be? Then a flame can arise in the heart. And in that flame, all that we need to say is, Ma, 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 Ma. Namaste
2: thank you so much bhaiya the perspectives which you have given it has definitely you know uh, i'm sure the the way it has um, opened up new vistas for us so there are a few questions as usual so um, a very pertinent question is that when a loved one is going through a harsh circumstance of adversity what is the best way to help
1: Uh, When a loved one is going through a hard circumstance of adversity, what is the best way to help? Basically, these are the things. Right perception, right understanding. And then, of course, the right goals, the larger picture, all precisely, you know, the whole package. But at the same time, there is something else we can do. And that is to support him or her through the tremendous energy of love. When we spread, give this goodwill, this love, this prayer for a person who is going through a difficult, challenging circumstance, then we are adding to his own effort. So, it's like what we are doing is not just, you know, very often we start analyzing mentally and end up making things worse. Uh, a kind of sympathy which is more like a pity also doesn't help. What is needed is when a person is whom we love is in... Distress is compassion, not pity. What is pity? Oh my God, you are going through so much pain. Oh my God, why God has to give all this to you? This is making things worse. On the contrary, we must bring in compassion. What is the difference? Compression comes from heights. It is a strength. It is not a weakness. It helps us to open a door. You know, as somebody said that you think that all the doors around you are closed. No, some of them are not locked. Just try to open it. So to show this aspect that there is a door which is open and can open. And yes, of course, by the very fact that we love somebody with all the goodwill uh, is itself a very big thing. And I can tell you that, you know, however hard the going may be, if you know that there is a companion with you on the road, it reduces your uh, challenge by half. And when you know that the divine is your companion, then it takes away the entire challenge. That's how the Gita puts it. I have given this exercise to people Sometimes I tell them that, you know, uh, a lot of depression that, you know, why don't you make divine your friend? So, this was a girl who said, how? I said, no, you you take Krishna as a friend, that's it. And he says, is it? I said, yeah, tell everything to him. You start with this. After five years, I mean, she was in touch and she said, I am so thankful because it changed my life. She was a number of antidepressants and it went away because, you know, she real, realized that there is a friend. So, what is a companion uh, love meant for? To be with the person. You cannot always change the things, but the very fact that you know that you are with somebody whom you love, whom you can trust, changes everything. You know, uh, that story of uh, Sabitri and Satyavan, Satyavan is going to die. But because he knows Savitri is there, look at the sting of death is taken away. He says, Savitri, Savitri, I want to be in your lap. And he says, he says, maybe your presence itself will save me. And then he closes his eyes and his closing thoughts are Savitri, Savitri. And that changes destiny. So, true love, I am speaking of true love. You know, loved one is different from really having true love. And if there is true love, if somebody is so fortunate to have one in his life, it can be a tremendous help just by the mere presence. And of course, as I said, prayer, showing the right way, uh, compassion, which understand the causes of difficulties, unconditional love, that, you know, all these are wonderful things which, which help and keep us going. Yes?
2: As you rightly said, that uh, sometimes we keep on looking at the closed door that we forget that there are hundred windows which are also open. So another question is that is it possible to live a life without attachment and continue to fulfill our duties as an individual in this world? Uh,
1: To live a life without attachment and continue to fulfill our duties? Uh, then one will miss out on something most important in life and that is love. So, you know, (laughs) it's okay. We can do it, we can fulfill. There are people who do it, who are purely living in the mind and have a sense of duty and they are doing it, but they miss out on this flaming core. Now, there can be a love which is detached. So, that's what I say. There are two kinds of love. One is love which can be detached. This is where friendship is. The friendship is a kind of love where you do everything, but you are detached. So, you are there available for a friend. When there is a problem, but otherwise life is going on, you don't, you know, you are fine. When you come to know friend, sisters, you may help, you will help to the extent, but it doesn't affect you. So that is a kind of attachment. But on the other hand, there is love. And love goes to the core, completely identifies with the person to the extent that one can and takes upon oneself. Now there is a great joy, it's a, it's a kind of sacrifice. So yes, it's possible a lot of sages live life like that, they are detached and they do their duties uh, because it's prescribed either by the religious text or because it's social convention uh, or because they simply feel that this is what will earn me some merit and I can go to heaven. So they are really not attached with people, but they want to earn a merit. So there is a <laughs> there is a ulterior motive behind it. But uh, uh, what is missed out, uh, one must say, and that is love. So I would rather say that do our duties, but uh, greater than duty is love. And that love can only awaken in the heart if we have learned to love the divine. It is only there that we discover the true source of love. Be as the divine. How does the divine act in this world? Not with a sense of duty. He plunges himself into creation to labor of love to pull it out. Why? Because he loves. So, he's not doing a duty that, oh, I have made things, let me do things. Then he will say after some time, yeah, well, I tried my best. That's what duty is about. But you don't listen to me, so what can I do about it? It's not the highest status. Highest status of the divine is that he just unconditionally gives himself to creation. So, one can live life without attachment, fulfilling all the duties. But there is a greater state which the mystics know of and that state is love. Yes.
2: Uh, but yeah one question another uh, i mean it uh, is related to this question also that you said that attachment love is also important for fulfilling a duty so i mean we often say that the best love which is given is from the mother the mother to the child but sometimes while giving love they become extremely attached and that attachment you know, sometimes, uh, you know, it changes into a power game and, you know, it's like, you know, no. imposing a lot of control. How
1: can… Yes, so, so mother's love for a child. Now, first of all, let me once again clarify this love and attachment. There is a love which is impersonal and universal. There is no attachment in it. And yet it is there like light which is radiating and effulgence which is going to all. So there is a love like that. Definitely there is a love like that. And there is a love which can be intensely personal. And that's where we have, you know, even divine. There is an aspect of the divine as a teacher, which is, you know, a kind of impersonal love. But divine as mother, where we see that divine plunges into creation and takes upon himself the burden of everyone. This is… Now, this attachment can be an ignorant attachment or an attachment in knowledge. So, when I attach myself to, let us say, a mother attaches to the child, this can be completely ignorant attachment. You want to fulfill everything that the child demands. You want to just, you know, uh, you're not really showing the child the way. You are completely only strengthening the ignorance and the bonds of ignorance, which are going to eventually make him suffer. But there is an attachment which is an attachment which is born out of strength and wisdom, where you never lose sight of the wisdom. And while you are attached, you are also bidding the person walk the path and go towards the goal. Let me take an example, you know, somebody is climbing to the summits. So one approach is impersonality. I stand on the summit or wherever and I say, you see, take that route and this route and the person falls. I tell them, you know, get up again. This is an impersonal, detached kind of state. Where I don't lose my station of consciousness. The other state is ignorant attachment that I come there and the person says, you know, I am feeling very tired, I want to go this way, I want to go back, I want to fall down. And I say, okay, I am attached to you, so let me… Now, this is an attachment to the ego self. But this is another attachment, attachment to the soul of a person by the soul of one human being. Then what do you do when a person is feeling tired? You don't say, okay, fine, let's go back. You say, let's rest. And let us continue the journey again. So, one never gives up and helps one stick to the path and walk towards the heights. So, this is the difference. So, love born out of truth. But human mothers are in ignorance. So, it's not only possession control. But it's uh, sometimes uh, much worse, you know, children are meant to I have never found a more despicable uh, thought than this one Where children are meant to be your old age ki lathi I mean, you take a lathi, better then have a grown-up conscious being. Or you have, like, you know, people say that I am marrying so that uh, my needs can be looked after. Somebody will cook for me. and I mean, you, you hire a maid. Why do you want to marry, which is such a beautiful thing? It's an act of love. Even if the person does nothing for you, it's about love. It's not about cooking and taking care of your needs. Are you a little baby that you want somebody to mother you? I mean, this kind of an approach where now uh, mothers can be very ignorant and take that example of uh, ignorant mother who was uh, Kekai, sorry, Kekashi and even Kekai, by the way. Kekashi is uh, uh, this uh, mother of Ravana, um, if I am right, the name, yes, Kekashi and Kekai, mother of Bharat. So, what did they do? Out of attachment to Bharat, the other out of attachment to Ravana, tried to further their ambition. One was so unhappy in his life that, you know, my lord, my beloved Rama had to suffer because of me, he suffered. And the other Ravana met his own nemesis. So, this is the ignorant attachment. Further your ambition, further your this. What is the attachment of love? We see it in the life of Shivaji. Mother Jijabai, right from childhood, she says, you are not born for ordinary things. You are born for the greatest of the great. Look there, there is a Uh, person who is taking this cow, you know, there is a story in the life of Shivaji at 12 years of age. Look here what he is going to do. Look here, you know, this is the kind of rule in which, you know, your dad has to go and do salam in front of, you know, alien invaders. So, she prepared Shivaji to face death but take on the challenge of life. So, this is love which is inspiring, ennobling, uplifting and here also you are attached. Otherwise, she could have said, look, Shivaji, I mean, this is what I want. But basically, you look after the kingdom. That is ignorant attachment. So, uh, attachment with full awareness, never losing sight of the goal, with complete wisdom in your heart. And yes, the perfect love is the right kind of attachment. And attachment in ignorance, but that's too much to expect out of human mothers, unless they are yogis. Or they are born like Jijabai, who is born to give a mission to a child. Yes
2: child and you know uh, directing the rather
1: than, the, rather than the ambition
2: yeah. yes yeah directing uh, towards an uh, purpose of life is something which is extremely important and comes under the uh, you know this thing of mother uh, there's one more question which is related to the topic it's like are all adversities divine will even those that bring Very us uh, bring our lives to a pause leave us feeling lost and hope?
1: Well, this is a very good question. Are all adversities, divine will or tests, something like that? Now, you see, if we think events and circumstances are arranged by the divine, then we have to, we have to paint the divine as a monster, you know, because much happens in this world which is outright evil. But I don't want to go into trying to understand evil because that's a subject in its own right and we can take up. So one thing we must know that in this world as it stands today, there is not the open will of the divine at play. So a lot of things happen in this world, they are not the direct expression of the divine. If there was, world would be a wonderful place. Secondly, divine has no interest in testing us. He is us, he knows us. He's on our side. But there are many forces at play in the world other than divine in myself. And it is from them the challenge comes. This challenge, the so-called test or adversities are allowed by the divine wisdom. Wisdom is one of the aspects of the divine. So this wisdom is allowed these challenges because they are soul's opportunities. But there is love which supersedes wisdom, the divine love. So on one side, the wisdom aspect of the divine allows us these challenges, tests, adversities. On the other side, the divine love leans into creation, helps us, supports us through these challenges and navigate through it. So it's not that divine will creates adversity, far from it. Divine wants us never to suffer. In fact, the mother says love for suffering is a morbid thing. He wants us to be happy, but we do not listen to the divine will. That is why we have suffering. It's just the other way around. If we really listen to the divine will, what the divine wants, if we just read the Gita, let's say, or the Buddha, any of these we pick up. What is the divine expressed to them? If you are attached to desire and ignorance, you will suffer. So divine will has always said that be freed from these things. But precisely because we do not obey the divine will that we suffer. So it's the other way around. Divine will is for joy and beauty and love in creation. But there is a way to it because there is a process. It cannot happen automatically. Now, if we don't want to go through the process, then we will be in this mode of existence. So, the process means effort and progress. If we don't want to do that, automatically it should be like a paradise, it won't happen. Even paradise will not be paradise because there also we will compete with somebody else. So, yeah.
2: That's one strategy which a teacher has asked that, Sometimes we have overprotective mothers. So, how do we help these mothers to realize that the, this is going to make the child weak?
1: Okay. So, strategy, (laughs) I wish I had one up my sleeve. (laughs) Strategy for uh, the mother who is overprotective and how to explain to her that this is going to make the child weak. So, the only thing is, which I keep on repeating, that educating a child is not enough. (laughs) Educate the parents. And I must tell you, it's a very difficult task. Much more difficult, but, uh, you know, uh, educate through little leaflets where uh, impersonally… See, when you personally call a teacher, a parent and try to tell, you know, you are making your child weak, then the ego becomes defensive. But you have noticed in a classroom or some common problems. So there should be a kind of a monthly newsletter or something. Very, very impersonally you say, Ki when we do this, children become weak. So impersonal jnana is much more easier for people to accept and follow than something which is said, you know what, you are making your child weak. Shut off. that's how they are, I mean, human beings are. So, it should go in a packaged in a form that can change the person. But as I always say, not everything can be cured or healed. So, ours is task to do and uh, like a an nishkam karma and then leave it to, you know, destiny. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. So, so, on behalf of the MIS family and everyone who was a part of this talk today, I express my heartfelt gratitude to Alok Bhai. His talks always give us a new perspective and insight into things. Adversity does not spare any human being, but how can we make it a stepping stone to inner growth and deal with it in a progressive and peaceful way is in our hands. Thank you, Bhai, for helping us understand this. Thank, Thank you everyone for joining the session and This making divine your companion is the key which I'm going to take with me today. Thank you. Thank you you so much.